This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance podcast. I have to check this. I don't have any idea what podcast this is. Um, and I, <laughs> it's probably like 93 or four. I don't know. Uh, it's been a while since we did a recording because, uh, as probably a lot of people know, I had uh, a heart issues and was in the hospital. I'm fine. I'm uh, technologically improved, apparently, and all is well. So with me today, uh, from Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. Good afternoon. In uh, New Delhi, I believe, Varun Mother. Still in the mountains. Hi, hi, hi. Oh, you're hi. still in the mountains. Hi, man. Yeah. Uh, in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, Corey Morningstar. Good morning. In New York City, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, John. Hi. And I know, Hiroyuki, you've been under the weather. I hope you're feeling better. And in, I believe, New York, uh, Christian Parenti joins us. Hi, Christian. Hello, everybody. Uh, Okay, so it's been a while and a number of things uh, have happened to discuss, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about media, but also uh, there seems to be a, a, a resurgence of the COVID narrative and a sort of rearming of, uh, of, of the prevailing uh, uh, sort of system of of misinformation regarding that and i know christian has a lot of stuff to say about that so maybe we'll just go to you first and then other people can join in uh yeah hello everybody um well i just did a, a review of naomi klein's book that came out in compact um magazine and um i it was a critical review because you know, Naomi Klein in her new book um, uses Naomi Wolf as a foil and really a dodge. And she, you know, she, what Naomi Klein attempts to do in that book is essentially admit that the left got a lot wrong during COVID, but minimize that admission as she mm -hmm. goes. And she tries to portray... She doesn't try. She portrays anyone who dissented from the prevailing narrative around COVID as a conspiracy theory nut job, with the exemplar being uh, Naomi Wolf. And so she avoids, Naomi Klein avoids all of the super well documented problems with the vaccine, super well documented problems with the lockdowns super well-documented connections to biodefense. So one of her things is she's like, the crazy bioweapons, right? This is something that's going around and everyone who's listening to this should be very aware of this. Bioweapons are illegal and they have been illegal since 1972 when Nixon signed a treaty. That treaty allows for all sorts of research under the guise of biodefense. States who sign that treaty still have the right to do all kinds of research, including gain-of-function research on viruses in the name of defense. And, and biodefense is, among other things, about trying to 
anticipate what sort of threats might emerge from nature and or what type of threats might uh, emerge in the laboratories of enemy states so as to build medical countermeasures, right? So this is all totally legal. All you have to do is enter biodefense into your Google search, and you'll see that it's everywhere. This is not a secret, weird conspiracy thing. This is a huge and open program. Certainly it has secret components to it, but, and it's out and it's, it's in, it's in connection to open and legal biodefense that the whole connection of the Wuhan lab, you know, that's what that's all about. So anytime anyone tries to be, oh, bio weapons, it's like, that is a pejorative. That is about trying to minimize and avoid the reality of these legal and extremely dangerous programs under the guise of biodefense. Anyway, so so Naomi Klein just rehearses all the usual tropes of dismissal, can't cop to anything, and is an apologist for big pharma and the authoritarian states that crushed whole, you know, whole economies in the global south were brought to their knees by these lockdowns. And this is not this was known that that this was going to happen at the time and there were critiques and the other thing that Naomi Klein avoids almost entirely, uh, minus a, a quick little apologetic mention, is the massive campaign of censorship that has gone on the entire time around COVID. So that in a nutshell is what I, I say in the, the review. Maybe there's nothing more to say about her book, but that reality, I mean, the reality of these of this situation, I think, is, is very real. And I mean, the sad thing is that her book is emblematic of the left's failures. The left in the West, by and large, was totally wrong about everything on the pandemic. There are a few dissenting, literally a handfuls of, of people who come out of the left, such as Corey Morningstar and yourself, John, you know, uh, Max Blumenthal, people who had the temerity, leftists who had the temerity to stand up against the orthodoxy of the left. But by and large, the left is, is still um, sticking with the positions they took up in March 2020 and and in the spring of 21 when the vaccines came out, or at best they 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 claim that they want to move on. They don't want to get bogged down. They're sick of talking about it. Well, I think censorship is a, is a huge topic related to this because we're seeing it obviously with with the the uh, U.S. NATO war in Ukraine, uh, which. And, and censorship bleeds into a discussion of, of historical revisionism as well, uh, because there was a, a, a Zelensky was on one of his charm tours uh, this last week with a stop in Canada, and they, they uh, trotted out some 98-year-old uh, ex-Nazi who fought with the Ukrainian nationalists in World War II, in other words, he fought against the Soviet Union for the Nazis, and he got a standing thunderous applause from uh, the every single person in the you know Canadian government was standing and applauding. This is very bizarre, but it's not so bizarre when you see this constant conflating of fascism and communism. Chris Hedges did it just the other day. I still maintain Hedges is a psyop of some sort. But uh, but it's everywhere, and and it is there is a a constant kind of uh, uh, assault against anything Marxist, anything Soviet, anything Russian, even anything Maoist, anything communist at all. And 
you see the rise of revisionist historians, whether it's, you know, Cobbin's book on the French Revolution from 20 some years ago, whenever it was, uh, the Anthony Sutton books on the Bolshevik Revolution, all of these things are enormously popular and have become kind of the uh, the received wisdom on these topics. Never before, certainly in my long lifetime, have I seen this level of, of, of overt propaganda against socialism. So it, 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 it is directly related to the entire COVID um, discussion too, but I see hands right there. Corey. Okay, I just wanted to talk to add a bit to Christian's commentary on Klein. Um, I would think the left, liberal left really fails to see or does not want to see um, how deep Klein is in in with um, you know the nonprofit industrial complex ruling class entities such as the Rockefeller family. Um, so, if one looks and researches, you'll see that Klein's books come out right in front of every single um, climate action event that they have in New York City every fall. That was started by the Climate Group, which is tied into We Mean Business, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the Climate Group is behind the creation of Greta Thunberg with Callum Greaves, who um, actually created um, Climate Week New York City. Um, if you look, this changes everything. The big book that sort of kicked off this whole together of um, corporate power and the, the left movement under the banner of climate change. Um, if you go back to 2011, that's when One Sky um, partnered with 350.org. One Sky created, basically funded by the Clinton family. Um, and at that time, Klein went to join the board um, of 350.org. And if you look at that in 2011, it was actually called The Message. It was a package deal made with Klein. And in 2011, the Rockefeller um, Brothers Fund gave 50,000 for the message. Wallace Global Fund gave 75,000. Schmidt Family Foundation chipped in 40,000. And it was um, the film and the book which came to be known, this changes everything. And so while those donations um, in 2011, almost 200,000, and then that same year, um, what is it called? It's this quiet little, Oh, I know the senior, sorry, I'm all over the place a bit here. The Schmidt Family Foundation gave um, another 100,000. So that's about 400,000. And then the film, of course, was produced by Lowertshire Films, which is Susan Rockefeller. Um, anyway, people, some people might know that Klein's husband, Abby Lewis, is actually his father, Stephen Lewis, is um, one of Canada's most notorious imperialists. Um, you know, big supporter of illegal invasions, occupations such as Libya. Um, anyway, there's a lot recent, more recently, Chris, what's her name? Christi Christiana Figueres, um, who's tied in again with the United Nations. She was a former secretary general. She's her brother. Her family's been running Costa Rica for generations. Her dad, the president, her brother, all tied into the World Economic Forum. Um, all kinds of great big NGOs like Richard Branson's War Room, which is now called, uh, what's it called now? Carbon Room. I can't even keep track of them all at the moment. Um, anyway, oh, where was I going with that? So sorry, I'm getting confused in my head. There's so many ties here. There's so many ties here and I haven't been writing for a little while. 
Um, okay, so Christiana Figures came out with a book. What's it called? Great big book. Anyway, endorsed by um, World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab. And the other huge endorsement, Naomi Klein. Like, imagine that, those two signatures on the same book. Um, um, I, let me just, <laughs> I, because something I meant to mention was speaking of Madison Avenue and these orchestrated campaigns, uh, uh, Ursula van der Leyen the other day gave a speech. I think it was in Brussels, but it might not have been anyway. One of her endless, she loves to give speeches. And she said, we are worried about Russia and its use of nuclear weapons again. <laughs> and in the same sentence, she mentioned Hiroshima. And she got, you know, a tiny bit of, of pushback against this, but it was ambiguous enough that, that she had wiggle room. The next day, Boris Johnson is talking in one of his photo op sit-down chats with some Ukrainian uh, representative and said, well, we all know World War II was won by the West and Ukraine. <laughs> this isn't, these are not accidents. These are that those two things came, you know, a day apart are not accidents. And, and I was telling someone, look, if only 20% of the population, 30% of the population, and that's being, that's lowballing. Uh, if only 30% believe this, that's a, that's a marketing win. That's mm. that's a success story. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but that's yo okay. That can oh, I just sorry. finish? Go on, that, go on, go on. No, that's okay. The future we choose. That's the name in the book. And then, um, if you look, so from Klaus Schwab, this could be the most important wake up call of our times. And then from Naomi Klein, tells us how our response can create a better, fairer world. Like it's it's just sort of satire at this point. You know that this could be a, a left leader. Um, pushing the same thing. And then Christiana figures, I've done lots of work on her. Her bio is just massive, including member of the B team, which is another co-founder of We Mean Business, which again, um, mm. behind the whole Greta Thunberg thing. So it's just um, massive, massive overlap with all these NGOs and tied into the World Economic Forum, which is partnered with the United Nations and runs the Sustainable Development Goals. I'll just stop there. Let someone else jump in. Uh, Johan. Yeah, unless Christian wants to respond to some of Corey's remarks here. No, no, I mean, that's that, that's all very uh, interesting, Corey. I didn't know I didn't know most of that. I'm sure I'll just just go ahead with with my my random ramblings here. So yeah, something that comes to mind when I when I listen to you here is this this vicarious participation in the exercise of authority that that we've uh, talked. Uh, quite a lot about before that, but I think it's probably become much much more right widespread recently. I mean, of course, since Adorno and and his friends published their their book about seventy five years ago, but even more so the last four years since people's actual agency is so much more circumscribed and limited, especially in the in the in the post COVID situation where we we not only have these draconian control measures but also this strong mediation of, of our lives, the, the limiting of actual face-to-face -face communications. And I think Christian's points regarding Naomi Klein's position and what we all know it represents in the broader sense regarding the, the left, I think that it fits into this participation in the exercise of authority very well, 
just to make it a bit more clear, uh, I, I think I see around me this this increase in a, in a in a desire for authority, this dissatisfaction in the face of of use and abuse of authority. I mean, both when it's targeting people they don't like, but often also when they're themselves on the receiving end. And I think this is true about the contemporary left in in general. And just a, a, an example from my context, uh, there was this announcement in Sweden a, a couple of weeks back from our equivalent to, I think, the Surgeon General. There were these new recommendations for alcohol consumption for men. And they had this idea that if you drink more than four beers at one and the same location once a month, this warrants uh, intervention from the medical industrial <laughs> apparatus. And, and the response from some people in my network was, to rejoice over this, not because it would uh, improve health outcomes, but because men are now faced with an authoritarian exercise of power that mirrors historical limitations forced upon women. And th this was said by some someone who is a self-identified progressive, and that shouldn't really be a good thing. And you see the same attitude towards various sorts of, of uh, dissidents facing persecution and all that. We, we, we've all seen that during COVID. And my point is that this is not a healthy reaction. This is not how a, a well-adjusted, psychologically balanced human being responds to what they recognize as the abuse of power. And I think this is very telling somehow. I would argue that this kind of reaction and the fact that it has become very common has to do with this, this sort of collective trauma bonding to the overbearing authority figure in a situation of, of abuse, which is, of course, a general background fact under capitalism, but it's also something we all know has become much more acute during the last four years, especially in, in connection to the COVID situation. And I also have a, a follow-up question, because, Jan, you mentioned that you see a resurgence of the COVID narrative, and I, I would very much like to hear more about that from, from all of you. Um, well, I, just one, one aside, here is that that um, the the sort of ubiquitous presence of of media of electronic media in people's lives is profound, and there is a there is a fragmenting of psychological fragmenting that has taken place. It seems. I mean, I guess this is self evident in a sense, because you have this this these varied campaigns. Uh, about climate that that we should you know and there entails a war on farming i've seen constant um articles against dairy against eating meat obviously is the most pronounced one uh and you're being scolded by various luminaries everybody from king charles to uh, whoever greta thunberg who you know on and on and on um and john Kerry and these people and yet King Charles made an appearance the other day for a state dinner at Versailles, you know, perhaps ironically, uh, with Macron and the French state and various luminaries, including uh, Sir Mick Jagger and so much for the bad boys of rock and roll, uh, but, but all kinds of people and European aristocracy, all of whom who flew there in their private jets and the menu was predictably lavish and contained lots of meat and poultry and cheese. The wine was Mouton Rothschild, which last I looked was like $1,000 a bottle or something. And 
and yet, and yet the media sees no hypocrisy in this, and the general public largely, I think, does this this containment, this compartmentalizing of these mm -hmm. contradictory elements. There is, you know, there's obviously a large part of the of the working class who sees through it, and you see that in protests, and it's always useful to point that out, that lots of people see this bullshit. But there are lots of people who don't, and certainly that liberal educated 30% uh, become the cheerleaders for this and are the most compartmentalized of all. It's just a strange thing because it makes you wonder, because in England, there was a, a study of uh, the police <laughs> because they were trying to institute 15 minute cities in a few places. And 100% uh, of the people refused to pay the fines, 100%. And something like 90% of the cameras had been destroyed in those areas. So mm -hmm. lots of people are against it, but I suspect this was predicted that the, the implementation of the state that put the stuff into operation knew this was going to be the result. There is this thing in propaganda, which is two steps forward, one step back, yeah. uh, and everyone sees this as a victory. It was predicted, it was, you know, spillage, and uh, th these other draconian measures of control uh, passed then unnoticed or less noticed a certain, in a certain sense. Um, Barun? Yeah, but it's also, <clears throat> I think, kind of this hankering, desperate hankering for the what's been now termed as the old normal, right? Without the surveillance state. But that I think is very, I think we're in very dangerous territory in here because it's also kind of, for one thing, all, all relationships are now primarily with the screen rather than with the individual, which I think Johan exemplified quite well in the sense like the screen, like the screen is mediating your relationship. Right, like whether it's the phone or the news channel or TV or whatever, but it's also unfortunately trying to preserve the neoliberal model, which is supposed to be critiqued completely by the left, right? So now, whether when you walk into a superstore, whether it's Apple or or mega store, which is if you go grocery shopping, and if you witness people, you, they might have different political leanings, but they're all buying the same stuff. Right, like so. In that sense, it's kind of this forced debate, which the public is forced, in some ways, to follow or manipulated to follow. But the ultimate subscriptions still rely on the neoliberal economic model, and that I think has become quite. It snowballed into a place where the conflation between what you were saying, John, in the beginning, um, the conflation between fascism and communism is, has become part of that. And people don't understand how the ideas that communism was trying, to, or socialism in, in that sense, was also trying to, trying to um, implement, have been taken over. The group itself is not making any decisions anymore, right? These kind of icons are making decisions and saying that this is, this is the community decision. And that's like the voice of the group and of the community and of the two individuals has been taken over. Well, I, you know, if that makes sense. this, this, yeah, this goes back to the COVID thing and, and Christian can probably comment on this, that the failure of the left, because, you know, the 
uh, World Socialist website was was among the worst uh, champions of lockdowns and and the fact that geez we need to get more vaccines to Africa never questioning uh, that perhaps Africa didn't want them uh, and and there was no COVID in Africa anyway uh, but but the the I can list all the names you know but but Counterpunch magazine which is probably not even a left magazine anymore. Uh, and all of them uh, were were yammering on about uh, COVID imperialism. <laughs> they weren't um, distributing the vaccines equitably. And there was no questioning of the entire project. There was no question about the origins of it. There was no question about, uh, about the reliability of Fauci. And there was an enormous acceptance of the silencing of those doctors and critics and researchers who objected to the the prevailing story about about the virus, those people were silenced. They lost their jobs. They lost their reputations. They suffered enormous um, economic uh, 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 problems because of speaking out. And these people were were silenced, censored, uh, and and the left did nothing, none of those, you know, prevailing Jacobin magazines, another one, uh, did nothing to, uh, to, to even address it or talk about those people or interview them or nothing. And of course, it was Giorgio Agamben who, who wrote in Italian newspapers about the, that suddenly there was a mass acceptance of government by decree. I mean, we've talked about this a, a great deal, but th this remains because I see these stories. There's, you know, all the predictions of there is a new wave of COVID on the way. Get your boosters. I don't know what booster we are on now, number six or seven or eight, and that you should wear masks. And I'm seeing the appearance of masks in public again here in Norway, at least. Uh, but I see it yeah. in use photos and so forth. So any, you know, any comments on that yeah. is I mean, worth. No, I mean, Rutgers University, uh, which is you know, the, the, the big flagship state university in New Jersey, and it's a very, very good school. Um, on August 15th of this year, they disenrolled all students who didn't get the booster, right? So this stuff is still going on. The yeah. DSA's conference, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, to participate on August 4th through 6th in Chicago this year. You had to show proof of vaccination and everybody was masked. Socialism 2023, also held in Chicago in September. Everybody had to be masked. Uh, you know, last year's labor notes were the same thing. I mean, it, the, the left just lost its mind and it's pathetic that people can't or that the institutions can't rethink it. Cause there are a lot of leftists. I mean, a lot of my friends were of the type who were like, just get the vaccine, man. But then they were, then they broke into kind of two groups. When it was clear that the vaccines didn't work, they're like, oh, wait a minute. You mean it's not one and done? They're like, forget it, I'm done. You know, the, the deal was I get it once and it's over. So forget it, you guys have broken your side of the deal. So there are a lot of, you know, people who are on the left who, who are quietly, uh, no longer going along with this, but it's, you know, the editorial class and the organizers who, who are doing this. And there's, I wrote to the head of DSA and, and asked, I said, what, what is this all about? And she, she said that, you know, the disability committee 
what this was essentially, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but it's, this is essentially like uh, their, their conference requiring vaccination was essentially a concession to the disability caucus that wanted even membership in the Democratic Socialists of America to involve vaccination, right? I mean, just as they wanted, they wanted some sort of unstipulated, much more draconian kind of implementation of this stuff. So that's that's just for if anyone's unaware, like what's the COVID thing? I mean, that's still going on on the left and in the mainstream universities. Um, I mean, I think the good news is a lot of people are just not buying it, but yeah, and around you know, I mean, uh, local um, institutions were were forcing staff to mask recently, um, you know, old age homes around here where I live. So yeah, they're not, they're not letting go. No, I think, I think clearly not. And, and I think there will be, I mean, ever since all the, all the COVID luminaries are predicting it, one, one will sort of have to assume that there will be a new COVID outbreak and a new pandemic of some sort. Um, you no, know, can, can I say one other thing about this? Sorry. Yeah. I think crucial in this is um, the concern with respectability, right? And that that is what drives a lot of this on the left. And that mm -hmm. that concern for respectability is rooted in the fact that the working class is not particularly well represented in the organized left. I mean, the professional managerial class, credentialed class outnumbers the working class and and the the professional managerial class is or the professional class is incredibly insecure for obvious economic reasons mm. rooted in the last 40 years of neoliberalism and um and they are constantly you know policing the boundaries of respectability and this this is what has infused the left for a very long time, probably the entire post-war era, it's a lot of what drives anti-communism. You were talking about anti-communism earlier on, John. Yeah. And I think a lot of ant left anti-communism is as much rooted in an unconscious sense of propriety and a concern for respectability as it is in any kind of critical engagement and weighing with the historical facts, weighing of the historical facts. Right. No, but I think that's absolutely true, and and because because nobody knows the historical facts, nobody reads, nobody certainly reads Marx anymore, and and you know I understand on one level that there has been this this constant bombardment of uh, anti-Marxist sensibility i saw the frankfurt school is constantly being attacked by again like jacobin writers in particular but uh the the i can i could cite you i could provide a a list of articles attacking like hugo chavez all of these strange positions that uh muddled the the uh, the facts and muddled the history, and, and we started this off talking a little bit about about the um, the revisionist uh, narratives about the Bolshevik Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. Uh, so, so all of these people suffered, you know, the respectability thing, but they have they have also come to to f because so much of the academic left fears for their jobs. Uh, they they accommodate this revisionism and take and and uh, sort of 
embrace a default uh, position that that is really not left at all anymore, but allows them to to not feel that they're going to be assaulted. But this brings up another topic, and everybody can talk about this too, which was the whole thing with masking and getting the shot. And and uh, you know, I remember you know lots of leftists posting on social media proudly, "I got my shot." Caleb Maupin was one of them. I got my vaccination. Uh, it, there is, there is uh, this, this uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This sense of uh, of peer pressure and 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 approval, and certainly even people who were just liberal absolutely felt they could not afford to uh, to embrace with all the influences and celebrities and so forth coming out about the vaccination the the campaign was was overwhelming it was well funded and orchestrated perfectly and a lot of people simply didn't want to didn't want to die on that hill and i don't know why entirely maybe they felt it wasn't important i'm not sure okay um hiroyuki we haven't heard from you and then Corey. Well, uh, I mean, but if we step back and uh, uh, look at the basic structure of a uh, capitalist system, um, I mean, the, the function of uh, social uh, democratic political party is to uh, uh, take on one side of the political spectrum and the other side is taken care of by the uh, right-wing conservative parties. And uh, so... You know they do go along with the uh, larger uh, framework of uh, imperial projects. In uh, in this case, uh, namely um, the uh, the virus things and also the uh, uh, the green capitalism thing and uh, uh, maybe Russian stuff. And uh, um, they all agree, you know, to a certain extent and. Uh, so there is, um, we can see what we are looking at as a symptom uh, of um, uh, what we have. What we have is a completely institutionalized, um, you know, capitalism and imperialism. You know, it's, 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 it's everywhere. Like I'm in the arts and it's really, really hard to talk about things that are deviating um, uh, in, in these things. It's it's you know those slogans are completely um, imprinted in the uh, discussions and uh, thought process, and uh, you can't even bring it up. Um, if you do, uh, there are consequences. The, the, the biggest consequence will be the easiest one will be you are Trumper. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're from. Uh, Canada, Norway, um, you're a Trumper, you know, it's, 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 and, and this in itself is a reflection of the fact that, you know, it, this is an imperialized um, uh, thought process, because, you know, those countries are not the US, but the, you know, the cultural imperialism is everywhere, you know, it's, yeah, discussing it's, the arts is probably a whole podcast on its own, but yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's about it. Yeah. Corey. I wanted to talk a bit about when I went to Ottawa for the, um, you know, the big demonstrations. 
And um, against COVID with the truckers, supporting the truckers and um, working class. And it was super interesting what I saw there and what's happening now. So if I, before or now, if I go into say some sort of um, assembly of activism, you'll see a sea of blundstones, right? <laughs> this is a big thing I notice at six with me. You'll see a sea of blundstones on people's feet which are very expensive. Now they're made, they're not um, manufactured in Australia anymore. They're all made in China. Anyway, as soon as I got to Ottawa to the hotel and people were in there talking to each other, um, organizing, what I noticed were the feet, work boots, right? Um, shoes that were, you know, worn in, worked in, right? Dirty shoes the no particular name brand which is whatever anyone could afford way different now what's happening which is super interesting and what i found there as well talking to people in general just average people and younger people um the words live on uh, left and right have no meaning to them whatsoever they don't understand it they don't know what left is they don't know what right is they don't particularly care um, what's happening in Canada right now, the right, the leader of the right, the opposition party, the conservatives, which is the right party, and then the other liberal is Trudeau, right? And then you've got NDP, which is basically the same as liberal, who have actually dropped the word socialism from their platform long ago. So you've got the young people who before, you know, in a different world, um, an earlier world would have been socialists, communists, leftists, they're actually leaning toward the right leader, Pierre Polivare, I believe his name is, because there's this vacuum that has been left by the left. <laughs> there's this vacuum, and it's just a, sort of the same as what happened in the United States. The left abandoned the working class, and Trump stepped in and told them what they want, you know, what they wanted to hear. And they thought, well, that was their best choice. At least someone was listening to them. Here, um, Pierre Polivare is much um, younger. He's, um, you know, more polished than Trudeau. He doesn't come off like, you know, or sorry, more polished than Trump. He doesn't come off like Trump. And he really appeals to youth and the labor, the labor parties, right? Like the unions. Um, so here's this whole like I said this whole void is being left open by the so-called left which the liberal left has sort of absorbed all the grassroots left that's gone too and so now you've got the right wing party growing and absorbing like I said all these people that would have before identified it, and they still do I mean if they sat down and looked at everything and read everything they would identify is socialist, communist, right, leftist, but now, do you do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, and and but part of that is uh, when when you see articles, uh, often social media articles and and memes and whatnot about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, it is always uh, framed as the threat of world communism, uh, and. And so, you know, people people think, oh my God, see, communism is this terrible thing, and it's not in my interest, and it's dangerous, and and uh, it's to be avoided. And the alternative, as you say, is is then becomes, uh, you know, Donald Trump or or 
somebody like him who uh, who is an uber capitalist, but uh, seems to represent on on some fundamental level their interests and makes them feel recognized at least because in the U.S. the Democrats have become just um, laughably corrupt and 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 open grifters that that uh, they are the party of war now. And the ones tied to to the intelligence community and and to the defense industry far more than Republicans today. It's a very strange situation, but it is this, it is, it is the residue of, of 60, 80 years of anti-communist propaganda of, of a constant Mm -hmm. stuff and, and, and people fear it. Yeah. Christian. Just real quick, sorry that, but yeah, I mean, I think that part of this is also, um, you know, the culture war is easy to dismiss because it's the not it's not the real issue of political economy and imperialist mm-hmm. war. But I mean, I think that you know, part of how this politics plays out is also that, you know, the working class, your average working class person, doesn't interact with billionaires. The one percent, the real owners, you don't you don't deal with those people. However, you do deal with the managers, right? And the managers are increasingly Democrats. And the conflict that you have most immediately with the managers is often not about like, hey, you're going to have to work harder for 15 cents less or whatever. But it's about like, you know, how you're dressing, what you're saying. Uh, you're mm-hmm. not going to get promotion because you're backward because you believe in God or you don't believe in this or that. Right. So that there I think, you know, there's even for the classic, you know, low information vote or whatever, there's a kind of politics that people feel, which is that like, you know, there's this class of people like Hillary Clinton who act and sound and look like Hillary Clinton, and they run the hospitals, the schools, the hotels where you work, you know, and they look down on you and they treat you like shit, you know, and and the Democrats embody that class, right? And that, and the subculture of that class. And, um, yeah, and so then Trump comes along and makes explicit economic appeals, right? He said, you know, mm. I'm going to bring the factories back, right? I mean, one of my favorite quotes of his is he's in New Hampshire. He says, we're going to have factories that were in New Hampshire and went to Mexico, come back to New Hampshire. And when they do, you can tell them to go fuck themselves because they let you down and they left, right? And people go, sir, right? So he makes explicit economic promises, but he also embodies a kind of, you know, more relaxed... Um, style of of talking and being that that in a small but important way feels liberatory to people who in their day-to-day lives are actually hemmed in by uptight managers who are constantly trying to get them to do this or that and go to this training or that training or whatever <laughs> uh yeah johan hmm. so so what you're saying christian is, is that you're seeing an increasing authoritarianism in the managerial class maybe maybe more pronounced and, and that connects well to to Corey's observation that that young people who are naturally rebellious seem to be either apolitical or or leaning towards what's called the populist right. And, and maybe this also connects to to the concern for respectability you you both mentioned, which in in my view is, is sort of imperialization of authority on, on a group level. Uh, and on on that note, I'd like to just shortly return to well, well, this afternoon's hobby horse of mine and, and ask 
whether this concern for respectability as a group behavior pattern on part of the left can psychologically speaking be connected to the adaptive response to an oppressive situation where the victim internalizes the abuser's idealized perspective and, and view of reality. You know, it's it's often exemplified by victims of abuse being driven to defend the abuser and, and um, justifying their behavior. And if we are seeing this becoming more pronounced now, I mean, you have all the parts relevant to this sort of collective trauma bonding, if I can use that term. These parts are in play if we look to, to COVID, the, the response to COVID, as well as the, the climate change narratives. So you have this threatening situation that, that warrants uh, um, a reattachment to, to mother or to, to an authority figure. And there comes a response that's equivalent to abuse in terms of the in injections, in terms of the draconian lockdowns, in terms of the climate change narratives, looming threat of, of authority limited, limiting your resources and liberty and the persecution of dissidents. And then you get this subsequent adaptive response among, well, both the general public and, and particular groups actually celebrating the abuse of power. Of course, Russell Brand should be canceled because the dominant narratives tells you he's a bad guy and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, this is also, it. I think one has to at least mention and I mean, I know you know it, but that 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 the the who is visible on media is a very specific uh, uh, sort of the hot bourgeoisie, if you want this this again educated, mostly white, not entirely uh, uh, set of influencers and celebrities, and and in whatever field. They are carefully vetted, and those are the people that get the vast majority of screen time uh, in media. Hollywood is, I can tell you from personal experience, has no working class voices at all involved in uh, the the uh, the creation, the creative process. Mm -hmm. Uh, absolutely none. I may have been one of the last ones, and and I left, uh, you know, twenty years ago. So twenty four years ago. So uh, it it's uh, it, it there is a there is a constant drumbeat and and presentation of a world shaped to the values and and beliefs of the, this class. And and it that that has that's operative at least unconsciously in people. It's very hard to resist that and to fight against it. And yeah, Trump is a. It's very obvious why Trump was appealing to people because uh, because suddenly people felt recognized and in, in spite of the, the obvious fact he wasn't of their class, uh, he he spoke at least somewhat to their their grievances and and to themes and stuff that 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 they felt uh they were unable to express for fear of condemnation and and suddenly like here was this guy saying oh yeah you know uh they stole your jobs and the factories went to the spix in mexico and we have to stop that and blah 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 and and uh, nobody else was saying it, and the Democrats referred to these people as the you know those in the flyover states, uh, and and it was insulting. They were being insulted constantly in Hollywood, which bears 
enormous responsibility and has enormous influence, enormous. Hollywood represented them all as, as wife-beating bumpkins and, uh, and, and objects of ridicule and the source of, of jokes. And I think that, that, that it was absolutely understandable that, that they would react to that uh, with, with some kind of whatever you want to call Trump, a kind of um, demonic populist of some sort. I don't know what he is, but, uh, but, but it is, but it is interesting. And it, but the bottom line here is that media is absolutely controlled and coordinated. Those when media consolidation took place in twenty three, the final nail in the coffin, uh, with uh, what's his name, son, uh, the uh, the general, what's his name, Cassie, getting old, um, Colin Powell's son, Michael. Uh, was the head of the FCC, and they, the media consolidation was complete. It was down to six corporations, and that that they controlled all of media. And once that happened, those six were no longer competitors. They were they were in cooperation with each other to stay on message, and they did, and they did, and and what we see now is the is the outcome of that. So. Okay. Um, any other thoughts from people? Well, you know, it should be said that having worked for a long time as a journalist, um, you know, most journalists do not need to be told what the editorial line is, right? Yeah. In, and this is part, this gets back to the, 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 the professional classes, hyper attuned concern with credibility. If you're going to get ahead in the professions, you need to know how to get along. If you need to be told what the rules are, that means you can't really read the room and there's limits to how far you're going to go. So it's like, yes, there is this top-down control. Absolutely. And when people step out of line, even when they're top earners like Tucker Carlson, they get taken off the air. But the vast majority of, of journalists are like ants with their antenna that can pick up pheromones from you know half a mile away and can anticipate what the editors want. And the editors can anticipate what the executives want, who can anticipate what the owners want. So just wanted to put that in there because it's 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 an important part. That, that cultural milieu is an important part of how this actually works. Yeah, yeah. Corey? Yeah, I just wanted to add, I mean, identity politics represents zero threat to the ruling class in the you know current political order, whereas working class struggle is the very threat to the capitalist system, economic system, and the ruling class and the current political um, power structures. And, you know, thinking about that, I just wonder if you want to say a public school and, you, and, and also not only that, the identity politics serves even um, further, you know, the aspirations and goals of the ruling class. You can look at transgender, um, even the co-opted, you know, um, gay rights, gay pride, Black Lives Matter, it's all been co-opted to further, you know, their own brand, to further their revenue, um, electrical, sorry, electoral voting, um, it's, it's co-opted all over the place. And then if you went to a public school room, I just wonder if you said to the kids, you know, whatever, from grade one to grade eight, you know, who here is from a working class family, I just even wonder if anyone would raise their hand. You know, if if they would even know what that is, or if all hands would be down, I I don't know if people even 
it is sort of what we talked about before on the podcast, you know, the erasure of, of words and things like um, selling out, how that is no longer even recognized by youth and that has no meaning whatsoever. No. You know, if you're, if you're under 15, they do not know what you mean by that. No, so no. Well, I, I mean, Christian has a great article, which um, I think most of you may have read, but should read on diversity. Uh, diversity is a ruling class ideology. Uh, and it's great. And he points out that, and probably he should speak about, it, but he points out that, that, that uh, creating factional battles uh, uh, between, you know, and this is an identity politics thing. And by the way, this also links to, it, this is, takes us too far off topic, but it links to victims' rights, which which is another aspect of it, but maybe we don't get into that right here. But the diversity that, that, that uh, creating factional values among uh, the, the underclasses, the working classes, uh, is is a sure way to divert attention away from the the prevailing uh, class problem, and nobody talks about class, obviously, and and uh, everything becomes about uh, gender or race or something. Even as Christian points out, you know, a discussion of poverty becomes a discussion about something besides poverty, and and it is the target of the of the discussion is never is never the elimination of poverty or why there is such widespread poverty. Even, what I said there was, one of the things is like, who are the poor? I mean, if you wanna, if you Google poverty, what you'll find is all sorts of websites about which identitarian subgroup suffers poverty mm -hmm. at this rate versus that rate and you know what the ratios are between the different groups. What will be very hard to find is a description of the poor. If you want to know, well, who are the poor? You know, I'm not I'm not so interested in which which group suffers to some extent from poverty, but like the poor as a group, who are they? Where are they? What what are their ages? What you know, that that description is not offered. But yeah, that the heart of that article, which is also in Catalyst, I mean I'm not Catalyst, sorry, Compact, um, was uh, you know, James Madison's Federalist 10, where he comes right out and says it. You know, uh there, there's concern from elites. This is one of the famous Federalist Papers, which are written to urge the ratification of the American Constitution. And there, there's elite concern. They're saying, well, if we have political democracy, then how, how is that not going to end up in economic democracy, in leveling? And Madison says, look, there's a risk of that, but don't freak out about it because the solution is to lean into faction. There is always division in society. That's what he means by faction. He says the only time faction really becomes dangerous is if the majority of propertyless people get together and use political democracy against the minority who control the property. But if you can keep the majority divided with other additional forms of faction, then you don't have to worry about the fact that we have political democracy. It will not lead to economic democracy. And it's, I mean, Federalist 10 never gets old. It, I mean, sadly, it becomes more and more relevant. Yeah. Johan. Yeah, so, so that's actually in, in, in the Federalist Papers. That's amazing, actually. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, just, yeah it is. It is it, it's amazing. I mean, it's really worth reading. You're like, wow. He just said uh, quiet part out loud, as you like to say these days. I'm just going to you know, derail the, the discussion a little bit because we had a really interesting topic I would like to ask uh, Corey and Varun more about. 
because as we as we know things are going to be heating up for the western powers the the ukraine project is failing the dollar supported economy economy seems to be shaking a bit and and then the BRICS are unifying and have hacked off bits of opec and and, and that kind of thing and now we have this this violent uh, souring of the relationship between india and canada due to an alleged assassination on Canadian soil by the Indian government, which probably will be pushing India towards China, which I think is important since India was the most uh, recalcitrant party in terms of expanding the power of the BRICS in, in their late August meeting. So uh, it would be really interesting to hear more about this this uh, emergent conflict and, and maybe pose the question to the room, like what? What are the odds that something would happen? Like the West approaching a regime change in India within the framework of of this long game against China and, and the BRICS countries. Um, I don't. Uh, Corey, you have your hand. No, up. I just wanted to do the same thing. I wanted Varun to expand upon that very topic. So I thank Johan for bringing it up. Well, I mean, I mean, this week, as soon as this happened, and I'll let Varun. Um, discuss it and explain it to people. But as soon as this happened this week, there was a um, a pivot right from a few months ago talking about the China China interference in Canada, balloons, um, all this. There's been a pivot to India and, um, you know, a lot of fear being sown through uh, CDC radio. Like every single thing you hear is about India, 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 people calling in fearful, scared. So a lot of fear is being sown here. And it's sort of, um, you know, incredibly ironic for, for Canada to be talking about foreign interference. But I'll let Haroon talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, whatever the mainstream is telling us right now, it, I've been saying this for quite a few years, actually, since the South China Sea trouble started, in fact, is that India is poised in such a way where it can be used as a proxy for NATO wars against China and Russia. That's, I mean, that's, we have the manpower, we have the land, we are right next door. And I mean, all the weapons trade that's been happening between NATO and India and um, Israel and India, we've bought tons of stuff. We've got training exercises that are happening here between NATO and Indian troops all the time. And this stuff doesn't get published much at all. Although, at the moment, in the last couple of years, what's happening is that the public discourse every day, if you sit in a bar and people are talking, they are starting to sound anti-NATO. And that, in the sense, puts India in a really troublesome position. It's a really troubling position because the, the, the government has been written about, and this is their second term, over the last eight years, they've been written about as dangerous to democracy. The prime minister doesn't have a great track record about religious violence. And religious violence between the Hindus and the Muslims has increased phenomenally in the last five years. It's just unbelievable the kind of tension between Hindus and Muslims on ground in small villages, in cities. So there is a fomenting of this kind of um, internal division of course, which really works extremely well for NATO propaganda, where, I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as saying that we're going to step in to save democracy for rights and so on and so forth, right? But there's also this kind of persecution project, which is anti-Muslim, 
that's also unfolding. So in that sense, we are poised, India is poised in a way where it can go either way. But I think, like I was saying on the chat before, is that India seems to me like the Trojan horse for NATO in the BRICS camp, right? That's what they're trying to do, is to try and destabilize it. But also because I've seen the transformation of an agrarian economy into a debt-ridden spending economy, I understand why the neoliberal model must be preserved in India because it's a huge fucking market for the American corporations. It's massive. Right? Everybody, like this is an example that I've given before is when I was teaching film at one of these really known universities in Delhi, each class of 40, 45 kids, my first question in the class was if anybody could give me a piece of news from anywhere else in the world apart from the US and the UK. <laughs> and not a single not a single hand went up that's 80 kids 90 kids 100 kids but i mean at least a single hand would go up i would imagine but nothing nobody knew anything that was going on in africa south america southeast asia forget everything else so the cognitive map of the culture is extremely trained to be very pro us since we signed the liberal liberalization treaty and of course there's been tons of structural adjustment programs. We are badly in debt with the Bank of International Settlements and IMF and WTO and so on and so forth. So to preserve that economy, it's, it's, it becomes extremely important for NATO to have a stronghold in this country. So whether we are trading in oil with Russia or not, and whether we are, we've banned um, Chinese apps and phones in this country and so on and so forth, that has happened in the last few years, it starts to feel like the moment i mean i think the canadian um incident is just the starting point where there's going to be an arm twist for india to join the war against russia and china on the side Brian, maybe explain are... maybe explain Sorry. what the incident was well there's there's been an assassination in on canadian soil of apparently a khalistani who which is a separatist group which used to belong to Punjab, the state of Punjab. And the Canadian government is saying that that has been orchestrated by the Indian government, which has been denied, essentially. So that kind of, and, and of course, and uh, uh, Canadian visas have been halted. Like, so there are no visas being given to Canadian citizens from the Indian High Commission in Canada. Yeah, the idea that, that as a Trojan horse for, uh, for BRICS is very interesting, and Modi is such a, um, a peculiar figure in this. That actually makes a certain degree of sense. I have no idea, and I, I'm not an expert on this at all. But um, and I'm not even sure at this point I, you know, what to think of BRICS, and and uh, if 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 the United States genuinely fears it or not. Uh, yeah. Or, or what it means. Uh, there's there's the sort of surface reading that de-dollarization is, is something the U.S. fears, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, but I'll just add a thought here really quick, man, because I yeah. think whether it's, the, whether it's the euro or it would have been the Afrikani dinar or it, was, it is the dollar or there's going to be like a new digital BRICS currency, the point ultimately, I think, for me has become what are people going to buy with it? 
right? It's it's and I mean you can create a new pathway which is going to oppose Citibank or I don't know one of these big Wall Wall Street guys or whatever. It doesn't matter anymore because ultimately, what are people going to buy from it? They're going to buy a Pepsi, they're going to buy Coca Cola, Nike, Adidas, Apple, Microsoft, so on and so forth. So ultimately, all that for me becomes kind of secondary to the aspirational mindset that countries, especially like India, have. It might be a great um, advertising campaign to say that now we are no longer slaves of the US dollar, but what are you going to spend the money on? Because everything that's in the shop is still the same. It's not That's not going to change, right? Nothing of that changes at all. So yeah, I just wanted to throw in there, throw that in there. No, it's, it's interesting. And I, yeah, I, I don't have enough, um, it's not a field I <clears throat> can extrapolate on, but I think that the, the, um, resistance and the coups in Africa and the resistance from Niger and Burkina Faso and so on is extraordinarily interesting. And I think that is is not something that uh, the Western powers had expected. And Victoria Newland certainly looked uh, desperate and unsettled uh, when she took her last uh, trip to Africa. So that's something to keep an eye on, I suspect. Um, all right. Any uh, any final thoughts from people, Hiroyuki? I just have a question uh, for Varun. Um, what's the economic relationship with uh, uh, China? I mean, I'm talking about India. Man, like if you if you walk into any of the markets anywhere in the country, everything is flooded with Chinese products. Everything, and we used to be able to order online from China, which was banned. A few years ago, huh. so Ali, I think Alibaba is no longer a valid website that you can use them. So wow. that's yeah. And then I think there was a Huawei scandal about um, surveillance tech, and at that point, I think we also decided to stop buying those phones, if I'm not mistaken. But um, TikTok was banned in India, for example, and so there are many things like that that have happened, which are and. Obviously, we've always been, um, the, the border problem with China has always been a pretty big stressor politically. Mm -hmm. You know, like, because the Chinese have been making highways up into the Himalayas near the Indian border. So, and there has always, I mean, there's this news that keeps getting floated about how Chinese soldiers have walked across some glaciers and into Indian territory and they were caught and beaten up by the Indian army and so on and so forth. So, the economically a lot of investment in the film business has come from china recently in the last five seven years interesting so this is, um, yeah so it's that's what i'm saying like we are torn in both directions it doesn't matter which 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 camp we decide to finally side with because it will get pretty ugly when that happens and it will i think it will happen Burian, how many military bases did you say were there? That was a press release that came out about eight years ago and that disappeared almost instantly. That came out, which was that 57 training bases in India where NATO troops were present. Wow. Or US military troops were present as training exercises. And even like I know people in the Air Force, I know people who've been in the Army and Recently, I met someone who was in the special forces. And uh, when I brought this up with him in a private conversation, 
he refused to answer any questions. So, I mean, it's pretty dodgy that that kind of news gets disappeared and then nobody wants to answer what's going on, right? So, um, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, if anybody has final thoughts, um, this would be uh, the time to express them. Um, I, I, I just will add that that I think it is, it is difficult to overestimate the power of of legacy media, of electronic media, of corporate media of all the various platforms and news agencies, their importance and significance in shaping values. This is obvious and we have talked about it, other people have talked about it endlessly, but uh, it's interesting because often that discussion is, is per Christian's essay, is, a, is, is factional. Uh, the influence, the negative influence of social media and Twitter and whatever is now X, uh, has on on teens and that it it foments a kind of bullying mentality, all of these things. Uh, but but that overall, this habituation, the people's addiction to smartphones and and um, to various screen platforms has has really uh, been internalized in in ways that I think really are almost underestimated at this point. People, People get their view of the world. If if Vanderleyen says that it was the Soviet Union that that used nuclear weapons, uh, enough people are going to believe it because the screen is inherently carries with it a, a sense of authority. I mean, Jean Luc Godard talked about that fifty years ago, uh, and and. I first became acutely aware of that during the, the destruction of Yugoslavia with the narratives about Milosevic and the Serbs and all of this stuff, because I run into people today who still believe uh, Milosevic was the butcher of the Balkans and that the U.S., you know, was... Nobody knows that he was post-hominously found innocent. No, I mean, no, I mean people don't believe right. you when you tell them that. Um, yeah. People, I have to look it up and show them that 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 was the case. This is another one of my beefs with Chris Hedges, by the way, because he still lies about that. But, um, but, but I became aware of how profound the media was in constructing these narratives, and that, you know, what is this twenty some years after the the destruction of Yugoslavia, people still believe the Western narrative. Uh, almost to a person. I rarely find people who understand at all, even a little bit, what really happened. Um, uh, that's my final thought. Uh, Johan? I just have a, a, a quote to share you on respectability uh, and how, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it needs to be connected to to the ideological state apparatus as, as uh, defined by Atita. And how they reproduce the the relations of production. I, I think this this thing, which is re reflected in what you call respectability, is is a manifestation of, of this. And and this is just a quote from his his uh, Lenin and philosophy from from nineteen seventy. So he begins: uh, Children at school, besides learning know how these techniques and knowledge, they, they also learn the rules of good behavior, uh, the attitude that should be observed by every agent in the division of labor, according to the job he's destined for. 
rules of morality, civic and professional conscience, which actually means the rules of respect for the socio-technical division of labor and ultimately the rules of the order established by class domination. They also learn to speak proper French, to handle the workers correctly, uh, to order them about properly, to speak to them in the right way and so on. To wait, put wait. this more scientifically, yeah. Where is that? Sorry, not the quote, but I'm sorry. Oh, it's it's uh, Louis Althusser from Lenin and Philosophy. It's uh, it's an essay in this uh, collection, which is called Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses. It's from 1970. I'll just, I'll just finish it. So it goes on. Uh, to put this more scientifically, I shall say that the reproduction of labor power requires not only a reproduction of its skills, but also at the same time, a reproduction of its submission to the rules of the established order. That is a reproduction of submission to the ruling ideology for the workers and a reproduction of the ability to manipulate the ruling ideology correctly for the agents of exploitation and repression. So, so that they too will provide for the domination of the ruling class in words. And this, he argues, is affected by these institutions, which he categorizes as ideological state apparatuses, which are everything from, from schools to the media to, to, yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually, Althusser wrote that when he was going mad, but it's probably his best book. Um, and and um, I think uh, it's a really, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Coherent, approachable, accessible uh, explanation of, of base and superstructure and all, a lot of Marxist stuff that is laid out um, very uh, in a very accessible way for people, I think. Um, and I think that was his intention, actually. Um, uh, Corey, any last thoughts? Um, no, I just wanted to ask Christian what he's working on right now. Can you hear uh, me? Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm just writing some articles, and um, I don't have a big project. I might, I might, you know, might might cobble together some articles into a book, but that's that's what I'm working on. I also should add that, um, just in defense of Naomi Wolf, when she was booted off of Twitter for writing about um, women's menstrual cycles being interrupted by the jab, um, the injection of the experimental, um, whatever it is quote-unquote vaccine within weeks or months I mean that was being discussed in medical journals so <laughs> she was right well you know that, so I mean Christian points this out in his yeah I mean I'm not very nice to Naomi Wolf in my review because I mean she's also wrong about stuff you know and 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 she and she she's not you know when you go up against power as a public intellectual, you have to be on top of things, and it's not okay to be sloppy. And she is sloppy. Yeah, and, I, I, and that opens up all of her allies for criticism as well. So I, I don't, you know, but that doesn't mean she's wrong about everything. Not at all. She's totally right about that. In fact, my wife Marcy Smith Parenti wrote an article in the summer of twenty one <laughs> in the Gray Zone about that about menstruation disruption. I think it was one of the first. It was the one of the only. Uh, ones from the left but yeah that's absolutely that was one of the first tells about how bad these vaccines are well i mean you you see with with uh with the again just that 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 the media can control focus so russell brand is going to murdoch initiates 
uh, uh, an investigation. He trolls for victims, uh, and that's okay. And then he allegedly finds people, and then blah, blah, blah. But there's no criminal complaint. Nonetheless, the media piles on Brand. Okay, it's, it's irrespective of what one thinks of Brand, I, I tend to be sympathetic for him for personal reasons. But, but, uh, but then you have all the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, the infamous black book, you have Hunter Biden's laptop, you have all of these things, Gates, Bill Gates trips to Epstein Island, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's trips, yeah. 26 trips to Epstein Island, um, that just goes down the rabbit hole. It's it's just disappeared and, and people can't hold on to having seen it if they don't see it apparently a couple hundred times. And pretty soon people say, oh, that's just fake news. That's disinformation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there is, there is, has been a strange, the establishment of a very strange psychological uh, position now in the public at large, which is, which is a kind of regressive skepticism for lack of a better word, where people assume everything is fake. Uh, uh, they don't assume legacy media by and large is fake, although they they're open to the possibility. But but if it's if it's a if it's an, a minor outlet from the alternative press, the default position is to be skeptical of it because it it isn't in the mainstream, and and because so much is fake, and there are so many psyops launched by um, by Madison Avenue and the U.S. government and various other sources. Uh, that 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 people find it easy to to just be cynical about it, and as Adorno said, cynicism is just another mode of conformity, which is one of my favorite quotes. Okay, that's my last thought. Uh, anybody else? Uh, Varun, Corey, Johan, Hiroyuki. No, I, I I was I just wanted to point. I think the diversity um, essay that Christian has written is very on point in the sense how that translates into internet behavior on the internet and the formation of subcultures in contemporary modern civilization. And I think that it, or in the sense how that's, it's an, sort of an automated process that corporations are using to divide the public without giving them any solid floor to stand on for their own belief systems at all. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, um, it this was great. I, Christian, I, you know, you're welcome anytime and I hope you come back. Uh, and I'm thank glad you, to be- Thank you very much and nice nice chatting with everybody. I um, personally- Thank you so much. Yeah, what? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm happy to be back from the dead. I hope that continues. <laughs> and- uh, You're zombie, John. Yeah, divine <laughs> intervention. I'm I'm attributing it to divine intervention, um, uh, and uh, uh, it was it was strange. But I, the final coda to this is uh, all my criticism of Norway, and there is much of it, and and a very corrupt current government, and and the militarization, and their their uh, fealty to the United States. Healthcare here is free. And I was taken by ambulance to the great, very famous here teaching hospital in Trondheim, St. Olaf's. Uh, 
was there for 13 days, had two operations. They had a, this implant put into my heart. Extraordinary care. Even the food was good. And it's all free. So those of you in the United States, our friend John Bauer recently went to the emergency room because he had an infected foot and he was worried about it and it hurt. And so he went down and they looked at it. They said, yes, it's infected. And they cut it and drained it and slapped a bunch of uh, disinfectant on it, gave him some antibiotics for three days, bandaged it and sent him home. He was in the ER for 30 minutes. The bill? three thousand dollars yeah so so there's a rather there's a rather significant difference so um uh it, it's next time somebody complains about universal health care okay thank you all uh and thanks to jack Littman for putting it together this will be up on mm. soundcloud shortly and uh i'll talk to you all again soon Thanks, guys. Good job. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, bye.